This is Coffee, Books, and True Crime. Hey everyone. Hey guys. This is Nicole. And this is Amanda. And we are your hosts of Coffee, Books, and True Crime. Today we are going to be talking about Elisa Wall and her affiliation with the FLDS. This gets kind of deep, so if you guys ever have the chance to read the book called Stolen Innocence, it is her personal memoir. That's where I got the majority of this information. I also use a little bit of Wikipedia and Elisa's interview with The Guardian. Um. Now, Stolen Innocence is a book that both Nicole and I have read. We read it quite some time ago, but it's definitely an interesting case. It was over 10 years ago. It's been, I... Because I graduated 10 years ago, so... Yeah. It was before that. So, because I would have been a sophomore in high school. And I would have been a junior. And you were a junior. So, it would have been 12 years ago we read this. But I recently reread it using Libby, which is a library app for eBooks. Very cool, very cool. So, okay, so we're going to start off today talking about the early years of Elisa Wall and delve into the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which we'll refer to as FLDS. And this is a Mormon denomination, but it is essentially like the radical part of Mormonism. So how you have like radical Christians, I would say this would be a more radical group of of Mormons. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, Elisa Wall was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, on July 7th, 1986, to Douglas and Sharon Steed. So, both, um, so Douglas and Sharon were both members of the FLDS Church, which, as we had mentioned, is a Mormon denomination of the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, the LDS. So this particular sect of Mormonism practices polygamy. So Sharon was the second of three wives. This would be Elisa's mother. And Elisa grew up with 14 siblings, 10 half-brothers and sisters. A typical day would involve rising before dawn and helping her mothers bake fresh bread before attending religious school where Warren Jeffs would read from the Book of Mormon each morning at 8 a.m. And so we'll get more into Warren Jeffs later, but he is definitely a key um, component to the events that happened with Elisa in Elisa's life. That is the nicest thing that's probably been ever said about that man. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say anything nice about this man. <laughs> so no matter what age you were in this particular sect, you were expected to attend and take notes. It was a very religious education. Every aspect of history was spun a little bit differently. So they didn't believe in evolution and they were taught that dinosaurs basically came from a different planet. As a child in that society, you would essentially hang on to every word. So a direct quote from Elisa was that, I remember believing in it so much that it would consume me. The FLDS is one of the strictest religious sects in America. It was basically formed as a breakaway group after the Mormon church had officially abandoned polygamy in 1890. So this, this is one of those um, religious communities that continues to practice polygamy. 
Its members believe that they are the chosen people who will be saved after the second coming of Christ and shun the evil modern world. They are highly secretive and insular. The sect operates primarily from four bases in Arizona, Utah, British Columbia, and Texas. To delve a little bit deeper into the polygamous aspect of it. Which is illegal in the United States, by the way. Which is illegal, which is <laughs> kind of impressive that they can keep this so under wraps that they're still they could get away with this for so long. And I think they still do. I've, I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure that some... They just had that Sister Wives on yes, the... Yes, yes. On TLC, I yeah. think, just a few years ago. Yeah, so clearly polygamy is still practiced, even though it is not legal. Plural marriage remains a central tenet, so the requirement is that a man must take a minimum of three wives to reach the highest level of salvation. And the sect hierarchy leads by example. So here's where we kind of get into the politics that start the ball rolling for Elisa's story. So Rulon Jeps was the church leader until his death. He was 92 and he died in 2002. He is believed to have married 22 women, including two of Elisa's sisters, and fathered more than 60 children. Busy guy. I'd say. <laughs> Busy man. So his son Warren, which, like I said, will come up again, the current FLDS prophet viewed by the faithful as God on earth. He is estimated to have more than 40 wives and some 56 children. Intermarriage and incest are common throughout the FLDS church. Birth defects are basically viewed as evidence of a child having been especially blessed by God. So, not a... Not so, I don't know what to say that is particularly awful there. Science exists, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Extra chromosomes happen, extra hormones happen, lack of chromosomes happen... I don't think that's exactly what, you know. Okay, anyways. As far back as she can remember, Elisa was taught by Jeffs how to feel, speak, act, and think. This is screaming cult to me. Right? I mean, yeah. There's only, you can only stretch that you're a Mormon sect so far. Her spare time was spent listening to cassettes of sermons delivered in Jeffs' hypnotic and insistent monotone. It was brainwashing, she says. If you take a person, strip them of all identity, all emotions, then yes, that's what it was. Female members of the FLDS wore long pioneer style dresses and styled their hair in traditional buns and braids. The mandated undergarments covered their full form from wrist to ankle and right up to the neck, while makeup, tattoos, and piercings were not permitted. Elisa, along with other FLDS children, grew up attending the Alta Academy, which was owned and run by the church. So I remember when I first read this book that there were pictures in the center, and they really did have almost like this Amish look about them. Yeah, they do. Which I know that we... So I know that we just did an episode on the Amish, but really, if you look up pictures of FLDS members, they really do have that like Amish look. And I don't think they do electricity. I don't think they do... Yeah, I think they're very minimalist. It's very similar to the Amish. Yeah. Just with that, they seem to be a little bit more... They do drive vehicles, though. <laughs> yes, yes. 
and I, if I remember right, one part of that book, she was even talking about seeing like, quote unquote, normal kids playing and being kind of like, wow, like that is, well, they put them in public school there for a little bit before, once they hit a certain age, but then they stopped that because Warren didn't have full control. Yeah. Yep. So although polygamy is illegal in the U.S., it's difficult to prosecute it successfully because the FLDS faithful are rarely formally married according to state laws. And so this is why Elise's testimony proved so earth-shattering. It essentially enabled the authorities to pursue Warren Jeffs for arranging marriages to a girl under the age of legal consent, thereby becoming an accomplice rape. It had wider ramifications too. Her court case shone a spotlight into the darkest corners of the FLDS, shattering the sex conspiracy of silence. Which, when you hear her story, a lot of this is going to make sense. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. <laughs> so Warren Jeffs was solely responsible for the practice of placing young girls and women in marriages. Each prospective union supposedly came to him through a revelation from God. Now, like, and I know that there are religions and communities that practice arranged marriages, but this is, is really taking it to the extreme. Like, I don't think the majority of arranged marriages say, hey, this is your first cousin. He's who you got to marry. Exactly. And they don't, and I'm pretty sure that the underage element is not. I mean, this guy had full control of the marriages in a community. It wasn't like a family and another family arranging an arranged marriage. This guy had full control of, like, everyone. So under Warren Jeff's rule, the church leadership became noticeably stricter and the practice of marriage involving underage girls more frequent. One of his own wives was said to have been 12, which is gross. <laughs> his power was such that if a husband proved to be unable to control his own family, Jeffs would simply reassign his wife and children to a new man. Okay. <laughs> 12 years old. Yeah, that's just insane. Okay, the first major crisis in Elisa's early life occurred when she was 13 and her mother was reassigned to marry another man, Fred Jessup. Her life growing up with her mother, father, and his two other wives was the wives didn't really get along and the, the, the wives were removed from the father because he had lost control of his ability to keep his family intact. What a strike to the ego also. <laughs> like That they can take your wives away and yeah. children away? You're not being the man, so here I am to rearrange things for you. Exactly. Elisa, along with her mother and sisters, moved to Hilldale in the year 2000. There was also some brothers that moved too. I don't know why I didn't mention that. Anyways. The new family was particularly large, so the children were required to eat meals in ships. She compared the experience to starting a new school in terms of aspects of life that she had become had to become reaccustomed to. Over time, several of her brothers and sisters left or were expelled from the church. In 2001, the FLDS leader, Rulon, arranged for a then 14-year-old Elisa to marry her 19-year-old cousin, Alan Steed. And if I remember right from the book, they were they were our first cousin. So it wasn't like, yeah, it's your cousin, but it's your first cousin, which really increases the probability of issues if you're going to have kids. And this was the one person, Elisa said, that she could not stand. 
he had bullied her since they were young. I mean, yeah. she was still young, but yeah. since she was much younger. I remember her saying, like, no, like, this cannot be right. This is not, this cannot be who I'm supposed to marry. Like, I, she could, t- she knew that this wasn't right. Even all, the cousin thing aside, like, she knew that something was off. Rulon was the prophet, but Warren made all the decisions. It was Warren, the self-appointed head of the FLDS, who forced the 14-year-old Elisa to marry her 19-year-old cousin Alan. So even though Rulon is the one that said, you know, I have seen this is the marriage that's going to happen, it's because Warren told him this was the marriage to set it up. Because actually, if I remember right, also at that point, Rulon was really old and he was really, really getting ill. Yeah, and, and so it seems like Warren was really ma- like moving the chess pieces. Like he. Rulon was just his puppet. Yeah, he was influencing all the decisions, all the major decisions. And also, something that also that I had thought of that just really accentuates how cult like this is. I remember her talking about her dad. Didn't they have to, like, get rid of all of their stuff and they had to move into the house that he wanted them to live into in the community? Like, I'm pretty sure they had to get rid of everything, if I remember right, to fully, like, integrate into this community. It was Warren who insisted, despite her tearful pleas, that she must submit to her husband, mind, body, and soul, in order to achieve godly salvation. So he said, forget that, you're doing it anyways. Exactly. And when her new father, Jessup, informed her that she had been chosen by the prophet for marriage at the age of 14, she thus felt a curious mixture of terror and pride. A direct quote says, I was completely shocked because there were so many girls in the home who were so much older than me. But crazy as it sounds, there was a little piece of me that thought, wow, finally somebody noticed me. She had been brought up to be obedient and pious, to accept the prophet's word with unquestioning submission, and yet as the reality of her situation began to sink in, Elisa became increasingly distressed. Somewhere inside, she knew that what she was being asked to do was wrong. This is so, this is so sad. So, like, that's just terrible to me. Because she's 14, and what we know is coming. Which, by the way, trigger warning, it's going to get heavy. At a time when most adolescents are struggling to define the boundaries of their own identity, Elisa found herself buffeted against the ideology of an entire society. Her mind was conflicted. Although she still believed that becoming a wife and mother were the crowning achievements of a woman's life, she also felt deep down that she was too young to marry. Her own mother was powerless to step in. I mean, it sounds like like nobody could have stepped in at that point. Like, they're not listening to her. They're not going to listen to the the father of the household because we'll just replace him. The women are obviously supposed to be subservient. So, yeah, there's, I mean, what can you do? Nobody is going to listen. Exactly. I just don't. (laughs) This poor girl. And how many like her? Like, so there were, we know. Well, what about Warren's 12-year-old wife? Well, yeah. Yeah, and so he had. Hey, guess what? The prophet told me you got to marry me. Oh, sick. It's so gross. So so you've got, he had 50 kids. Then the other guy had 60 kids. That's, that's ridiculous. That's so many kids being exposed to this. It's rampant. Forced into a position of isolation, she sought a meeting with Warren to ask for two more years to prepare for marriage. For much of her childhood, Jeffs had been a remote and authoritative figure 
his spiritual omniscience underlined by his imposing six foot four stature. Elisa remembers him as having these eyes that bore clear through into your soul. She honestly believed he could read her mind. Warren was unmoved. He insisted that it was her mission and duty to get married. Okay, whatever. But is it really that... Could he not have given her two more years of her childhood? Like, how serious, you know? Like, yeah. Into what? Being a matchmaker. Not a very good one. No. It was very painful when she realized that no one was going to take into account how she felt. She pled and cried for a week on her knees, and she realized that the train was going to keep on going down the track. She said she felt like something inside her died. Elisa can clearly remember her wedding day. She remembers the simple white dress made by her mother and sister, the sparkly tiara she wore in her hair, and the ride she took in a horse-drawn carriage. But most of all, she remembers being 14 years old and trying her hardest not to cry. She felt betrayed and hurt by the people she trusted. She felt like her dress was like a set of shackles being fitted. She and Alan were married at the Hot Springs Motel in Caliente, Nevada. Warren Jeffs performed the ceremony. They had to leave the community and jump state lines and find this motel that was ran by somebody that was in the FLDS. That is so shady. To have this wedding. You know, and like, yes, she's a child, but I can't help but think that she's even more childlike because like... If you think about a 14-year-old today, like, they're exposed to a lot in our school systems. This girl, not so much. She's been, I mean... She's been in the been in the Mormon school system. So, I she, mean, so in my mind, she has to be even more childlike than, like, your typical 14-year-old. And, and sweet... And this isn't like it happened, you know, 100 years ago. No. This was just 2001. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. Also, can we talk about how shady the Hot Springs Motel Right? <laughs> no, thank you. She was bound to her new husband for all time and all eternity. She describes the marriage as traumatic with frequent rapes and miscarriages. Now, this was definitely getting into, if I remember, the second half of the book. So, the first half of the book was really informative. Yeah, like it was really, like teaching you about how yeah. she lived, how the Mormon Really going through her life, and this is the spiral of just total... Chaos? Yes. I'm trying not to cuss. <laughs> <laughs> Shit show? Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is where it gets literally awful, like so bad. But whenever we were researching, we're trying to keep it as light as possible, but if you're interested in details... Go read the book Stolen Innocence. Absolutely read. And, yeah, absolutely read this book because it really goes deep into her experiences with bringing this issue to light and how the events unfolded. Um, and if you're not so, a reader, there is all kinds of videos on YouTube that I watched with her as an adult now. Really? Yeah. I'll cool. have to go check those out. She did not receive any sexual education while in school and as a result was unable to understand her husband's advances. Oh, she's a baby. For three years... She was routinely raped and sexually assaulted by her husband. By the age of 17, she had suffered four miscarriages and a stillborn child. Now, this was definitely, like, from, this was definitely the hardest part of the book to read was her experiences having With the her, miscarriages and the stillborn. Yeah. That is so awful. So awful. And, so traumatic. And honestly, it... I mean, I don't know what her blood type is or what, you know, that looks like, but 
a lot of it's probably because of how close the incest was. Yeah, I mean, your first cousins, I mean, this is terrible. And depending on what you believe, that could have been God trying to save her. Which, you know, is probably what they would have argued. They would have said, oh, well, this is, they were, they were special. And that's why God wanted them now. So that's very hard, too. I mean, I am all for being religious and beliefs, but at some point, like we had said earlier, you've got to take into account that science exists and that first cousins are not meant to be reproducing. I'm allowed to praise Jesus and believe <laughs> yeah. that the dinosaurs were became extinct. But from another planet, though? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. At her lowest point, she attempted suicide with a handful of ibuprofen pills. Of course she did. She's completely isolated, completely unsupported, repeatedly sexually assaulted, having miscarriages. I can't believe she didn't kill herself, to be honest. And I know that sounds terrible. And I'm surprised it took three years for her to try. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Ugh, this poor sweet baby. She had been taught to think of men as poisonous snakes. Being exposed to marital relations was one of the most traumatic experiences of her life. In the years that followed, Alan routinely forced her to have sex. When she sought help from church, el church elders, she was advised to submit and keep sweet like a dutiful wife should. <gasps> okay. That's so gross. Yeah? That is so <laughs> gross. <laughs> I'm so mad. She suffered her miscarriages in silence, guiltily assuming that they were her punishment for her insubordination. And blaming herself for this. That's so terrible. She has little sympathy for Alan. And she shouldn't. Even though he was barely an adult himself. But you know what? Yeah. For me, as a child, he was very... Okay, not me. This is a direct quote. Okay. For me, as a child, he was very sexually abusive. I'm sorry for him that he was placed in that situation, but he was much older than me, and every human being knows right from wrong, mm -hmm. and he knew without mm -hmm. a doubt. He chose to hurt me in that fashion. That was his choice personally. Yeah. Yeah, you because know. even if they decide, you know, okay, we have to be married, that doesn't mean they automatically have to start sleeping together. Yeah, and to force anyone to do anything. It's like if I were to twist your arm and you said, no, it hurts, I would know as a human being that that's not okay. And I'm not going to keep twisting your arm. So I don't care what Alan's age Side note, was. she bit me really hard <laughs> one time. <laughs> she wouldn't let me in the van. <laughs> <laughs> don't believe her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I would never. <laughs> okay. You were being mean. <laughs> I was. I deserved it. Okay. Over three long years, she sank deeper into depression, eventually choosing to spend the night sleeping in her car rather than go home to face the daily sexual ordeal that awaited her. I don't blame her there. Like, she would... She had a heater in her car. She had an illegal little TV in her car that they would watch movies on and... So as her marriage with her cousin fell apart, as if it wasn't doomed from the get-go, she began... From the announcement, <laughs> it was doomed. From nobody listening to her, just to even postpone it. I mean, obviously it never would have ended up working, but my gosh. Okay. She began to spend nights sleeping in her truck. At that point, she had met a former FLDS member named Lamont Barlow. She escaped in the end after falling in love with Barlow who persuaded her to leave her abusive marriage and set up home with him and in the outside world. The affair was eventually uncovered when she became pregnant by him. While Elisa left the FLDS and married Barlow, having two children with him, at first life on the outside came as a profound shock 
Not only did Elisa not know what clothes to wear, but she'd hardly ever even heard of like pop music or television or many modern things. Because the FLDS operated its own financial system, where members paid into a central fund, neither Elisa nor Lamont had any idea how to organize a mortgage or negotiate a salary, really any financial aspect, they were on their own, like learning and, and figuring that out. They had to be taught to view the outside world as evil and damned. And the Mormons were strictly white. They did not allow African Americans to enter into this sect. And so she had never even seen somebody that wasn't just a white little Southern girl. Yeah, yeah. So this was really her first experiences with other cultures and other other races. Elisa remembers being shaken to the core when she first met a stranger who was nice to her in a grocery store, but her sense of loss coexisted with another, more penetrating feeling of anger. So, at this point, we haven't really talked about the fallout, so we've talked about her escape, but what's happening back at the community, at the FLDS community? Freed of the beliefs that had once bound her, Elisa turned state witness against Warren Jeffs. When she decided to testify against Warren Jeffs, the pressures became even more intense. Jeffs went on the run, and as news leaked out of her betrayal, members of her own family started phoning her to persuade her to change her mind. There were anonymous threats and intimidation. Inside the compound, the church faithful were encouraged to pray for Elisa's destruction. She and Lamont were forced to enter a witness protection scheme in July 2006. Now this next part that we're going to read, I actually remember sitting in class and it was, um, did you take any of the journalism classes? I did not. Okay, so I was in a journalism class and one of the things that we did every morning was that we would get on, pick a news story, and I think we had to talk about it or something like that. And I remember getting on there and I literally like gasped because the story of Warren Jeffs had just broke. So this was in 2006 and this is basically what happened. In 2006, Elisa Wall pressed charges against Jeffs, who was put on the FBI's most wanted list. He was arrested in August of the same year while traveling in Nevada in a red Cadillac found to contain $54,000 in cash, 15 mobile phones, three iPods, laptop computers, a police scanner, a stack of credit cards, two female wigs, one blonde, and one brunette. So can we just note here that Warren Jeffs is obviously a huge hypocrite. As, yeah, <laughs> there we go. As he had 15 mobile phones, a laptop, iPods. And mind you that they had to give 10% of their money to oh, the yeah. church. The church and the trust that they owned. That central fund. Yeah. They owned all the houses these people were living in. And he's rolling 54 grand deep just driving around in a red Cadillac. Like he needs $54,000 to... <laughs> Do what? To stay in a hotel, to drive a car. Did he roll up in the Cadillac to the compound? That's my question. While testifying, Elisa was referred to as Jane Doe 4, though she later asked that her name be published, which I think is extremely brave. Yeah. During his two-week trial in September of 2007, Elisa remembers being extremely overwhelmed. 
After his conviction, Elisa refused the financial compensation offered by the court on the grounds that it would have come from the pockets of the FLDS faithful. She is, however, pursuing a $1 million civil action against Jeffs and the church in order to establish a foundation for girls like her who are forced into underage marriages and have nowhere to turn. In September 2007, Jeffs was convicted for two counts of being an accomplice to rape. Her evidence at his 2006 trial, given anonymously as Jane Doe 4, was enough to convict Jeffs of two counts of rape as an accomplice and sentence him to a minimum of 10 years in prison. It was only after his incarceration that Elisa felt safe enough to reveal her true identity and write a harrowing memoir, Stolen Innocence. Not too long after the story broke, I do remember reading a news article that had said that basically the church continued to support Warren Jeffs. So even though he was in prison and had been found guilty and had received a sentence of 10 years in prison, the church still supported him. They saw this as basically, the church saw this as people trying to suppress Warren Jeff's religious beliefs. Yes. So they're trying to, that the people in the system were trying to suppress Warren Jeff's and him getting God's word out there. So interestingly, the church at that time, I don't know if things have changed because this was in 2006, 2007, but at that time, the church was not supportive of Elisa and continued to support Warren Jeffs regardless of the conviction. And speaking of convictions, Alan, her ex-husband and cousin, was charged with first-degree felony rape after Jeffs' first conviction in 2007. The rape charges were later dropped in favor of Allen entering a plea bargain by confessing to the charge of engaging in sexual relations with a minor. As a result, he'd served 30 days in prison and three years on probation, as well as pay $10,000 in fines. Not a fan of that. No, but... State authorities raided the yearning for Zion Ranch in Schleichner County. That's what it was called. I knew I could not remember the name of the ranch. Yearning for Zion Ranch. Mm, Okay. Texas in April 2008 after Texas CPS and other authorities received a number of phone calls from Rosita Swinton, an adult Colorado resident. Swinton falsely claimed to be a 16-year-old victim of physical and sexual abuse named Sarah who was living at the ranch. Oh my gosh, that's genius. Subsequent reports say that Squinton had repeatedly posed as a child victim. A girl matching Sarah's description was not found, and authorities rounded up members of the church. Subsequently, the children, 213 boys and 250 girls, were separated from their parents and transferred to Fort Concho. Can we just... Not say that next part? (laughs) Can we just point out that that's the size of a small school? That's 400 kids. If that tells you at all the size that this ranch had grown to. Yeah, that's nuts, because that's just the children. Yeah, that's just the children. After it was determined that there was no evidence that the children were unhealthy, mistreated, or in danger of suffering abuse at the hands of the FLDS, they were returned. Man, that's so... What a bummer, because you know out of 213 boys and 250 girls, there's there's something going on there, especially with what we know about Elisa's story and what's going on. And she's not the only one. No. Elisa participated in the raid by educating the Texas officials on the people. 
She publicly defended the state's actions, saying they have reasons to fear that the girls are being married and having children at way too young of an age. They have reasons to fear the children are in a dangerous place. It doesn't mean that the mothers don't love their children. It doesn't mean they don't want to be good mothers. It just means that there are reasons for what Texas is doing. All right, so we are going to wrap up here with Warren Jeff's life in prison. Which, this is frustrating. This is really frustrating. Okay, so Warren Jeff's prison life has been tumultuous. He was at Utah's Purgatory Correctional Facility. Can we just talk about how it was the purgatory? Because <laughs> really, between he's hanging between life and death. I mean, yeah, for in his eyes, anyways, being with the Mormons. I mean, yeah. Okay, sorry. At Utah's Purgatory Correctional Facility. He suffered from infected ulcers on his knees, which resulted from praying days on end during solitary confinement, which, what a beautiful picture to give the church mm -hmm. about how hard he's been praying. Okay. He attempted to commit suicide by hanging himself at one point. In August 2008, Jeffs went into convulsions after banging his head against the walls of his cell repetitively and had to be taken to the hospital by helicopter. On July 27, 2010, so two years later, the conviction of Warren Jeffs as an accomplice to Elisa Wall's rape was overturned because instructions given to jurors were erroneous. State authorities considered retrying Jeffs in Utah, though the matter was complicated when Wall was accused of fabricating a key piece of evidence during the first trial. Elisa's attorneys had used medical records for proof of a 2002 miscarriage and thus proof of intimacy in the marriage. Jeff's defense attorney interviewed Jane Blackmore, Elisa Wall's midwife at the time of the miscarriage in November 2010, and alleged that Elisa had requested that she recreate the detailed records when she could not find them. Elisa's attorneys responded that she had only unwittingly replied to Blackmore's questions during a phone call. So what happened? In 2011, Warren Jeffs was convicted in Texas on sexual assault charges unrelated to Elisa's case and sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years. Since Warren Jeffs would therefore be 100 years old by the earliest time he could be released from prison, Utah decided to drop the retrial. Because he's still in prison. Right. But still unfortunate. So now he is still in prison and should be there until he dies. So Warren Jeffs, well, we know he had a lot of daughters, but his daughter Rachel was able to escape and told Philip Francis, who wrote this article I'm reading, how she was able to get out. He ruled his cult with an iron fist during his reign, he managed to wed more than 50 women. He would use the teachings of Mormonism and pervert them to gain power over his flock. Warren had his first plural daughter with a second wife. That was Rachel Jeffs. She saw firsthand how her father used the religion to hold power over the women in it. Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the FLDS, taught the members of the church that the women were to keep sweet. Rachel told Dateline, that's how we kept Heavenly Father's spirit. It's a rule that required all women to always smile and not get angry or jealous. Violating this rule would be met with extreme punishment from Jeffs. 
Rachel was sexually abused by her father for years. From the time Rachel was eight years old to the age of 16, her father abused her. Now, this is Warren. Yes. He would also show her pornography at bookstores. Ironically, that was something he preached against. Rachel says that she was confused because it was so against his teachings. Rachel told her mother about the abuse. Her mother confronted Warren, but the church had its rules of the women keeping sweet, so her mother's objections were dismissed and nothing was done. Rachel ended up having to endure many more years of abuse. Rachel was forced into a polygamous marriage herself. She met her husband the day before they were to be wed. They eventually went on to have five children together. The cult wouldn't let her see her own children for seven months. Her only crime was having sex with her husband while she was pregnant. This was the final straw for Rachel that prompted her to begin her journey for freedom. Rachel and another sister of hers eventually had enough abuse from the cult. This is the first time it's really been referred to as a cult. Yes. But I definitely see it having cult. For sure. This is not how... Mormons normally... They're really a peaceful people from what I know of them. Yeah, and I have some friends who are Mormons, and the mainstream Mormon church does not behave like this. No. They banded together and organized an escape through her grandparents and some other relatives not affiliated with the church. The psychological abuse was so severe that Rachel said it was so against our way of life that she almost felt guilty to be happy. Even after being put behind bars, Warren still ran the cult, which is what we were talking about earlier. And he was charged for the abuse of the young woman arranging marriages for for the abuse of young women due to arranging marriages, but that's the one that we've already talked about with Alyssa. With Elisa. And even though he was serving time, he was still able to issue stuff to his church and dole out punishments for perceived transgressions from some of the members. That's when Rachel was banished from her own children. Her father was already in jail. Rachel had a last little bit from her interview with Dateline for anyone going through any hardship. No matter what situation they're in, know that they can be strong and use any hard experience. They're going to make their life better and help others. So often, if you help other people be happy, it helps you overcome your hardships and what you went through. So the... It doesn't say in that article, but I'm assuming the sexual assault one that Warren was actually convicted for was the assault on Rachel. Uh, yeah, it kind of sounds that way. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm assuming. But Because they were trying to say that Elisa had fabricated uh, evidence, so I would say that the one that he really got was convicted for was, yeah, was Rachel. The one that really stuck, I should say. Um But yeah, I would absolutely recommend, which I'm sure we'll have a photo on our Instagram, but looking up some of the photos so you can put some faces with some names and really experience what this story is about and that lifestyle that is so different from the mainstream. And we have really made this pretty vanilla for you guys. Like this was a really rough case. I mean, there's a lot more details in her memoir we've been able to give today which absolutely pick that up it's a really great book but um yeah definitely come over and check on our instagram i'm sure we'll have pictures posted our handle is coffee books and true crime 
And we can't wait to talk to you guys on the next one. Awesome. Bye. Bye. This is Coffee Books and True Crime.